Furthermore, the equation E is equal mc square. And here's the discovery. Hello and welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio podcast. I am Isaiah Hankel with Cheeky Scientist. We have a great show for you today. This is the radio show for PhDs who want to get hired into their first or next job in industry and who want to thrive in business. Thank you for joining us. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. Great to have you on with us today. We have a very exciting show lined up for you. We're going to be talking with Peter Docker, who has worked with Simon Sinek on helping you figure out your why, your professional purpose. If you've ever started your job search, you hit a sticking point, and then you just got demotivated, it's likely you don't have a strong enough purpose. Perhaps you don't know exactly which professional lifestyle is right for you. Perhaps you don't know if the career path you're trying to get into is right for you. Perhaps you have uncertainty, some doubts on whether or not you actually can get a job. We're going to talk about all of these demotivators today and how to stay motivated, how to stay connected to your professional purpose, how to connect it to the outcome you want to achieve, getting hired, getting into that next level position, how to think ahead further than you are now. A lot of you are only thinking ahead one years uh, to, to maybe five years at the most, you got to have a much more longer term mindset in terms of your career, which means you have to demystify a lot of the things that are holding you back. So we're going to dig in today. We're going to get some specific strategies. We're going to connect those strategies to things that are going to keep you motivated. We're going to help you go beyond trying to find a nice, shiny job title, something that sounds important and great to doing what you need to do first, which is figuring out the professional lifestyle you want and then connecting a job title to that. And I'm just realizing that I'm not connected to power. Can you plug this in for me? <laughs> Thank you. So great to have you on with us on this special radio show. We're talking about how PhDs can find their professional purpose. And again, if you've ever thought, I don't know if there's any career in industry that's the right fit for me. I don't know which of these careers that I'm seeing right now, maybe you have our, our 20 position guide, which you can get online and you're looking at them and you're like, I don't even know if I'm the right fit for any of these. I'm reading them. I like them, but how do I know if it's what I want long-term? Maybe you started to doubt yourself like I did. When I was at the end of my academic career track, I realized, wow, I've been in academia for over 20 years and I am just realizing now that I don't want to be a professor. I have no idea what else I want to do. And I'm a very driven and strategic individual like most PhDs. How did I get here? How did I end up stuck in my job search? I, you know, and I, I reached a point where I felt purposeless, like I didn't know where I was going. I know some of you in the chat box here um, that are associates um, are feeling the same way or have felt the same way. It can be a very demotivating time because having a strong purpose, knowing where you're going in your career, in your life, is what energizes you, what gets, gets you out of, the out of bed in the morning to, to do your work to do exhausting work in the lab or the classroom over and over. If you get disconnected to that, uh, it's going to be very, very hard uh, to excel. It's going to be very, very hard to enjoy your life, let alone advance in your professional career. So what can you do? 
Uh, maybe you're a bit disconnected now because you realize you don't want to be a professor or you can't be. You've seen the statistics, the studies. There's very few full-time professorships left. They're being replaced by adjunct professorships, contract professorships, part-time. There's a pileup of postdocs. It seems like the whole system is broken down. It seems like your purpose has therefore broken down. So what can you do? You need to find a new purpose. You need to find a new reason why. You have to connect it to strategic goals for your careers. And you are the only person that can do this. Uh, it's not something that anybody else can do for you. So we're going to try to expose the path, the sequence, the strategy for you figuring out what your new purpose is going to be. What's your new professional purpose? By the end of this radio show, you're going to know exactly how to find that professional purpose. And I'm going to start here by giving you some tips, some things that will help you from a very uh, far away bird's eye view, get started. Start thinking about what actually fulfills me, what gives me a sense of achievement, where do I want my career to go? It comes down to really what, you're, what you want to do on a day-to-day -day basis. Today, if you're not happy, if you're not feeling a sense of fulfillment, achievement, it's because what you're doing day-to-day -day isn't fulfilling you. It's not giving you a sense of achievement. It's not going anywhere. There's no clarity there. There's no purpose. There's no long-term plan. And I know some of you have experienced this. Maybe you've had your PI or some other academic, somebody hold a carrot in front of you. Like if you publish this paper, you can finally graduate, right? If you get this grant, you can finally have your own lab or you can finally be a professor. And then maybe you've achieved it and they moved the target. And they said, well, you still have a few more things to do. You can't quite do it. And that just totally demotivated you because it took away the connection of your purpose, your reason why for doing something and the goal that you were, you were meant to achieve that was put before you, okay? So this, this connection between the why and the what is really, really important. The biggest mistake I see a lot of PhDs making is one, they don't realize how important purpose is because it sounds fluffy. It sounds like it's, uh, it's not real, right? Where's the data? We're gonna show you some data on purpose, but purpose sounds like a, a word that you know, people who don't have PhDs use, uh, but it's actually very, very important to you. And hopefully from what I've said already, you understand how important purpose is because you're probably feeling a little bit purposeless right now. You're probably here because you're not quite sure what your professional purpose is, where you're supposed to go, which careers are the right fit for you. All this has to do with purpose. Um, if you feel demotivated after rejection, et cetera, it's because your, your purpose got disconnected. You were doing something for a specific reason. You thought that would lead to a specific outcome. It didn't lead to that outcome. And so you're demotivated. Are you starting to connect the dots? We're going to connect more for you. The second biggest mistake I see PhDs make is they don't consider things on a, a micro scale enough in terms of the day-to-day. -day. What are you doing right now? What do you actually enjoy doing right now? You need to ask that question if you want to find the right career path for you. What do you want to do on a day-to-day -day basis? Do you like working with large teams, small teams, a lot of meetings, no meetings? Do you like innovating or do you like to be on the commercialization side of things for once instead of just creating knowledge for knowledge's sake? Uh, do you care about a, a large salary? Do you want to travel a lot? Do you want to work in-house? Do you want to work remotely? Just these day-to-day -day things, that really is what makes up your professional lifestyle. And that's, that's your starting point. Figuring out your professional lifestyle and connecting it to your professional purpose is the very first starting point. It comes before deciding on a job title. Once you know your professional lifestyle, your professional purpose, you can fit the right job title to that. Now, let me give you some examples. Maybe some of you have seen this before. I'm going to share my screen here. And I want you to do me a favor and just type in yes once you can see it. So do me a favor and type in yes if you can see 
this in the chat box. For those of you who are Cheeky Scientist Associates and get to join us in the chat box. Thank you, Asha. Thank you, Shizuku. Thank you, Cindy. How many of you have seen these graphics before? Type in yes in all caps. I love them because it's very simple. All right, so what it's looking at is uh, very successful or famous people in history, think people who have uh, left their mark on humanity in some way. Maybe they've written a specific book like Charles Dickens. Uh, maybe they uh, invented something scientifically uh, like Marie Curie. Uh, either way, they're listed here. And what uh, scholars did was they looked back to what these people did on a daily basis, which is pretty cool because we, we very often hear about the what of people's lives in history, like what they achieved. Um, we, we even hear about maybe the, what motivated them, like maybe they came from a very poor background or they faced abuse, et cetera. And this seemed to have driven them uh, to, to be successful or to leave uh, humanity better off than it was. But very rarely do you see people dig in at the individual routines and actions and what they did on a daily basis. And that's what allowed everything else. And that's the connection usually between your why and your what. It's the how, what you do on a daily basis. So all of, the, all of these things are intertwined. And what I, what I like here is it's just a, a very fun way to look at the 24 hours that everybody has in their day. Okay, so we're, we're looking at a, a, you know, Thomas Mann here, uh, Maya Angelou, uh, Victor Hugo, Charles Darwin. And it's breaking down what they did on a day-to-day -day basis. Benjamin Franklin... Um, and you can see here, it varies quite a bit. Now, these colors, very simply, if you go to the top here, right, have to do with the type of activity, primary work, social and meals, other types of work outside of their primary, kind of making ends meet, the things you do day to day, uh, you know, paying bills, for example. Um, blue is exercise. And then again, the, the orange is social meals and white is sleep. Now, you can see... And, and as far as the time goes, of course, the top is midnight or zero hundred hours to, to 6 a.m. noon, 6 p.m. Okay, so if, you, if you're looking at this, you can get your bearings. And this is something you can do for yourself. What I would encourage all of you to do is draw a circle on a piece of paper, put it at the top, right? Zero hundred hours, 600 hours, 1200 hours, 1800 hours, and then map out what you want your perfect day to look like. And I know this because I'm a PhD what's going to happen to you is you're going to be like, well, I don't want to narrow it down to like just one perfect day. Don't overanalyze it. Just write down the average day in your perfect week then, or the average day in your perfect year, just start somewhere. Um, and it can be a lot of fun to do this and compare it to your current day and then to try to bridge the gap. So you can see here Lud uh, Ludwig van Beethoven, right? So he had a lot of social time. This might be a surprise to some of you. How could one of the most brilliant people in the world spend so much time socializing or so much time uh, eating meals, right? Primary work here might be a surprise to you too. Didn't work after dinner. How is that possible? So it's, it's, it's neat to look at the lifestyles of, of these people, but it can also help you understand that your routine, what you do on a daily basis, it's going to connect those two things, your why to your what. Uh, and some of these can vary quite a bit. You know, Freud went to bed a lot later, um, spent uh, different, um, different times during the day. He spent working and he did it in, uh, he batched a lot of his working segments here. But again, had a lot of meals and, and socializing more than you'd expect uh, from Freud, who was um, a, a self-proclaimed workaholic. 
And then lots of walking. You'll notice this too. Lots of people went on walks around the countryside, et cetera, uh, in between their work. John Milton, Charles Dickens. I mean, here's another vigorous walk through the countryside of London here. But again, a lot of socializing. So for those of you who are thinking, oh, well, I'm way too smart or important or I have too much achievement and fulfillment to socialize, just check out all the orange on a lot of these people's days. These are their average days. And you're seeing, for the most part, a lot of orange on them, okay? And then you're seeing them batch usually into at least two different groups, the, the work that they're doing. The question is, what type of work do you want to do? And I, I mentioned some things before that can help you start to think about your professional lifestyle. So again, I encourage you to create a circle on a page at the top, 0, 0,100 hours, 600 hours, 1,200 hours, 1,800 hours, and start mapping out what your perfect day or a day in your perfect week or perfect month might look like for you professionally. Think about it professionally first. When do you want to start work? This matters, right? Some companies start later than others. It has to do with the company culture. Uh, put that down. When, when do you want to go to work first? Uh, what do you want to do when you're at work? Do you want to be working with a large team, a small team? Do you want people to be reporting to you? Do you want to spend a lot of times in meetings or do you hate meetings? Do you want to present? Do you want to travel? Do you want to work remotely? Do you want to work in-house? Do you want to work on the innovation side of business? You know, more maybe staying in R&D, working at a, at a lab or uh, helping invent new products or test them, QA, QC? Or do you want to work more on the commercialization side? Maybe you want to get into marketing or, or business development, et cetera. Start thinking of those different activities and groupings, and you can always drill down. If you don't even know where to start, then just do what they're doing here with the colors. Okay, I want to spend this amount of time working. These are the working hours that I really enjoy the most, where I get the most done. These are the hours where I prefer to socialize. I'd actually prefer to have a little bit more socializing time, uh, a little bit more work time or less time. Whatever it is, start to map it out. When you get done with this, it's not a coincidence that it's a circle, okay, because it's going to be like a target for you. Now you know where you're trying to get to. You know the professional lifestyle you're trying to get to, and you can ask, okay, which job title, which profession is going to help me hit this target? What profession, which job title can I fit to this professional lifestyle? So your professional lifestyle, it's the target, it's the key, it's what's going to connect, it's the how that's going to connect your why to your what, which we're going to dig into a lot more here. Type and understand if that makes sense. Type and understand in the chat box. So uh, I do encourage you to go to this uh, link. Lisa put it in the chat box, as did Mary. Thank you very much. Lots of different examples here. It's fun to go through. I'm going to stop sharing now, and we're going to go through some data talking about purpose, the what that you do, why it's important for you in terms of everything from longevity uh, to what's going to give you fulfillment and a sense of achievement uh, in, your, in your career. Before we do that, I have a, a couple of housekeeping items very, very quickly. I do want to mention that we have a great blog article that came out about project management. So if you're considering getting into different types of positions, we've been writing a lot about different industry careers going in depth. We covered project managers this week, last week, application scientists, the week before data scientists. Definitely check out our blog. You can go to our overall blog at cheekyscientist.com slash blog. And we'll take you to all of our articles. You can see what's trending for that week, what's come out, and you can dig into some of these uh, career paths. I should also mention that today is the very last day to sign up for the Medical Science Liaison Alliance to become a member. If you're interested in the Medical Science Liaison Career Track, we have a specific program with a training dashboard written by MSLs and MSL hiring managers to help you get into the MSL 
uh, career. There's also a private group network of MSLs, MSL hiring managers who are going to help you get hired. Here's the key. Once you join, you get lifetime access. No other program offers that. And it's PhD specific. Okay. Lots of other programs out there for MDs and PharmDs or a group. It's just so different, right? Your PhD training is so different. Who you are as a PhD is different. More PhDs are hired into MSL roles than any other uh, advanced degree type in uh, today, which is an amazing opportunity. It's the highest paying career for PhDs without industry experience. That's right. You don't need industry experience. You don't even need clinical experience. And it doesn't matter what your PhD background is in. We've had many engineers, for example, get into MSL roles. How is that possible? Because it's your training, your ability to process information, to collect data, analyze it, to speak to clinicians, to speak uh, to other PhDs and what they call key opinion leaders that makes you an amazing MSL. Go to msla.cheekyscientist.com if you're interested in learning more. And we have a very special webinar tomorrow on getting into a management role. Now, how many of you, I know we have a lot of you on here who are looking for your first job. How many of you would prefer to get into an entry-level position? And how many of you prefer to get into a management-level position? Type in entry-level if you prefer entry-level. Type in management if you prefer management in the chat box. If you're a PhD, please say management. Asha, how are you saying entry-level? If you get into a if you go the regular route, you transition into an entry level position because you don't learn any business concepts, you have no business acumen, you don't know how to speak the language of business, you will get an entry level job, very likely working side by side with people with their bachelors or masters, or worse, working for them. That is not success. Okay. I prefer you, instead of getting into an engineer or scientist one or two position, I'd rather you get into a senior scientist or a scientist three or, and be one step away or even directly into a principal scientist position. We've had people do it. That's just one example. You should go right into a senior role with whether or not you have a postdoc experience. You do not need postdoc experience to get into management level role in industry. What you need is business acumen. And that's where we're going to be talking about Thursday. Get into a management role in industry by increasing your business acumen. Seven core principles, everything from economics, organizational behavior, operations management, finance, accounting. We're going to cover the broad strokes here that you need to understand. And the problem is you don't understand much about this because you've been in academia. Just go to cheekyscientist.com slash business dash acumen dash webinar to sign up. Okay, let's move forward now to the show me the data section. And then we will be bringing on our special guest, Peter Docker, who has worked with Simon Sinek. He's actually giving a talk right now. Uh, and then he's going to join us after his presentation is speaking in front of a large audience about connecting your why to your what and, and staying motivated in terms of your professional purpose. But before we bring him on, we're going to bring on Mary to go through the, sh the show me the data section. Hi, um, I'm unable to start my video. Oh, now I can. There Hello. I am. Hi, Mary. How are you? Hi, I'm great. How are you? I'm good. So what do you think about purpose? Not important. Sounds kind of like a fluffy word. Essential essential it's essential you you need purpose why do you do anything right what is what does purpose mean to you oh that's a start off with a big question um, well, I, guess a <laughs> I guess the definition of purpose like when you hear that what do you think of um that you're accomplishing something you're you're changing something you're adding to something um and it connects to yeah it's sad there's satisfaction i i don't know no, it's good. I think that's very telling for what your definition of it is, right? You're, you're adding to something, you're changing it. And really, if you dig deeper, it, 
you know, that can change for a lot of people. The, the why you're doing what you're doing. I mean, why are you here? Why did you get into your PhD in the first place? There's a great question to ask yourself. If you ever wrote that down or journaled, or if you ever found like an old note that you kind of wrote uh, yourself or, or somebody else about what you wanted to do, or you've seen, you know, from like five years ago, it can be kind of amazing to, to, to reread your thought process and why you were doing what you were doing. So if you have anything that you wrote down or maybe you journaled before you got into your PhD, go back to some of that, read it. Why did, why did you get your PhD? What, what was your motivation? I'm guessing for a lot of you, you wanted to have a certain type of impact um, on humanity and you wanted to better things in some way, uh, like Mary said. Uh, so purpose overall is very important. We have some data here. I'm gonna share this on our screen. So if you can see the screen one more time, can you say yes? And then don't forget to say hi to Mary too. Really, really great to have Mary on here. Every, looks like a lot of people already did. You beat me to it. Okay, so one of the first things I want to show is this. There's this amazing connection between purpose and longevity. One of the books that I read a long time ago before I wrote my first book was Blue Zones. Um, these areas in the world where a large proportion of people way outside of the statistical significance of how many should live to 100, live to 100. Uh, so there, there's a, a huge proportion of people like in, um, I forget the city in Japan, uh, where there's more people that have reached the age of 100 uh, than should happen anywhere, right? And somehow they've all, they've localized into these regions that are called blue zones. Oh, yeah. Yeah, what it showed is, is that what they all have in common is a very, very strong sense of purpose. And Okinawa, thank you, Kermit, and uh, MK, exactly. So Okinawa, and so there's a lot of data on this that shows that once you lose your purpose, things can decline pretty quickly. And that's why you can feel so demotivated. I mean, how many of you, you kind of realize that you can't, you know, when that moment you realize you can't be a professor or that your PhD wasn't working out or you're going to have a hard time graduating something, you kind of lost your sense of purpose and you felt completely de-energized. Type in me in the chat box if you have any idea what I'm talking about. Or maybe it's just been like, it was like six months without getting a positive piece of data or without any, some, anything happening to you positive in your career, right? That's how connected energy and purpose is. Uh, but it goes deep. You lack purpose, you have a hard time staying alive. So the study we're looking at here, and this is from uh, Jama, the Jama Network, uh, com slash journals, and we'll put the full link uh, to the individual article in the post show notes in the chat box, of course. It says people who didn't have a strong purpose uh, strong life purpose, which was defined as a self-organizing life aim that stimulates goals. I love that. A self-organizing life aim that stimulates goals were more likely to die than those who did, and specifically more likely to, to die of cardiovascular disease. And there's a lot of studies on this. Like you lack purpose, that energy goes down and it really affects your cardiovascular system first and then your respiratory system and it just gets worse from there. Just from having a purpose. This figure illustrates the relationship between life purpose and mortality. Those in the lowest category, 1 to 2.99, have significantly worse survival than those in the highest life purpose category of 6. So let me see if I can get all of this on the same screen here. So this is the figure. Long story short, it's starting at the retirement age of 65 after people retire. Those who keep a very strong purpose, which, have, which would have a 6, the scale is 1 to 6, and those who have a very low purpose, people that retire and just sit on a lawn chair and do nothing, for example. Um, 
if you're doing that, that's okay. Maybe there is a purpose. Maybe you test lawn chairs. But either way, uh, less purpose means you live. You don't live as long. Lots of data on this. You're looking at the survival probability on the y-axis from 0.5 all the way up to 1. Everybody starts at 1, of course, and then it goes down uh, from there. And we see the trends, of course, go down. But those with the highest sense of purpose, it goes down. Uh, the slope is much less, right? Whereas those with less purpose, uh, it, it crashes a, a bit more. What, what do you think of these trends, Mary? What is this surprising to you? Anything to add? Um, well, just looking at the, the timeline, I mean, the, the impacts are pretty fast. Yeah, so lacking purpose. And, and did we, is this starting at around retirement, we thought? Yeah, 65. We're talking about this was, yeah. So yeah, it's so important to have a purpose. Um, and you can tell with someone, you, you, you stop working, your career is over. Um, and there are so many other uh, areas in your life, which we'll get to soon, that can give you purpose. And so um, just the value of focusing on those is, is evident here because um, yeah, 70 months in, there's a big difference between the people who have high life purpose and the people who don't. Yeah, and thanks. And so the x-axis has how many months beyond uh, uh, 65 that you will live or that retirement age. Um, and it's a pretty substantial difference. The people with the highest level of purpose, about 88% of them are living 70 months. Whereas people with the lowest purpose, uh, only about 74%. So that's a pretty big jump, <laughs> right? I mean, a 14% jump just based on purpose, just based on do you have goals and do you have clarity on your goals, right? Uh, and I think this definition, I want to go back to it one more time, a self-organizing life aim that stimulates goals, they're connected, the what and the why. A lot of you are really good at creating goals. Like, I want this, like. How much of your life do you live in your brain thinking, I want this, I want that, I want this for lunch, I want to accomplish this, I want to be here, I want to be a professor, I want to have a high paying job, all this different stuff, but you spend very little time meditating on your why, why do you want it, because that's a harder question, and there's a lot of studies, uh, Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize for his work on heuristics, and how your brain will uh, substitute the answer to an easier question as the answer to a harder question. So if you're asked to figure out why you actually want something, you'll just, you'll just answer it with what you, what you want, but they're different, okay? I don't wanna get too deep here, but the what and the why are different. The primary aim, right? A self-organizing life aim, the aim is the why that stimulates goals, the what. You want more what's, then you have to understand your why better. Um, and this, this data shows it. Anything to add to that, Mary? Yeah, I just, I think back to figuring out what kind of job you want um, in industry. You know, I, so I decided uh, kind of abruptly to leave academia and move to a new place. And I, yeah, finding my purpose, what did I want to do? Uh, that was really big for me. So, um, yep. The yeah, we hear, the we hear a lot about how, you know, our biology needs vacations. I think there's a lot of studies on this, that people get a vacation, they take it off, but there's a limit because if you have nothing to do after a while, um, it starts to impact your health. Like there has to be a reason. It can be a different reason than what is getting you out of bed now. And maybe what used to get you out of bed in the morning, used to be excited about it, isn't exciting to you anymore. That's where a lot of you have ended up. Just realize that you're in control of your purpose. You get to decide your own meaning and what gives your life meaning. You get to connect your why to your what. Um, not only that, you get to define your why and your what.
So let's think about it professionally. So this is putting purpose to uh, putting purpose to work. Um, that's the name of the study. It's pwc.com. Uh, we'll put the the link to the individual article in the post show notes. It's talking about the leader employee disconnect on the value of purpose. Why does this matter to you? Because you want to get into an organization that has the right culture for you. So I'd, I'd try to take away two things from this. Number one, realize how important purpose is to you and, and how important the three things we're going to talk about here are to you in terms of being fulfilled day to day. Purpose is more of the fulfillment side, right? The what is the achievement side. They're two sides of the same coin, but you have to have both fulfillment and achievement. Fulfillment being the why, achievement being the what, like the goal. Um, so we're going to talk about three things here that are really, really important to you enjoying your work on a day-to-day -day basis and that you should look for in an organization when you're interviewing there, when you're setting up informational interviews, et cetera. So what the article says is, how important is purpose to your work for business leaders and employees? While business leaders prioritize the commercial value of purpose, employees see purpose as a way, to, way of bringing meaning to their work and understanding the contributions that they are making to the company, their team members, and society. So we're looking at the value of purpose in the workplace, percentage ranking in their th top three priorities. Now, so we have, what do we have here? Seven bar graphs and one bar, uh, seven sets of bar graphs, right? So they're all paired. One is the employees level. One is the business leader level. Um, the, three bar, the three sets of bar graphs on the left, the employees care more about, and they are meeting in day-to-day -day work, strong sense of community, and being energized by knowing the impact they're having on the company. The three sets of bar graphs on the far right are looking at community awareness of social contributions, distinction and differentiation in the marketplace, and then reputation for growth and innovation. And for these three, the leaders care much more about them or ranking them as much more important. Um, then in the middle, the seventh one, it's about the same attraction of top talent. So what, what are the trends here that you see, Mary? Why, why is this interesting to you? Um, well, I think it just the day-to-day -day work for the employees that has to have meaning. I mean, that's the thing they're looking at every day. They don't always have the big picture in mind. Um, and that's important because that, you know, if that matches with the work-life balance you want, the, the whole, your overall purpose, that, that's very connected. Um, whereas just thinking at the level of the business leader, what their priority is every day is the company's growth and um, moving things forward and the numbers and so forth. And so that's 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 their purpose. So I think the the big um, challenge or goal or or what would be great is to to bring those together and explain them both ways. That's how you're going to have more yeah. employee satisfaction, right? And more productivity. All everything's connected. Everything's connected. Yeah. So if you so if you're thinking what is actually going to keep you energized day to day at a business, I mean the data doesn't lie. Uh, yeah, you want to achieve stuff, etc. But day to day right? The, the achievements get further and further spread out the higher you climb in your career or in life. You probably realize this when you're getting your PhD. Um, so what keeps you going day to day are the three things you're seeing on the left here, meaning in your day-to-day -day work. So the why, why are you doing this? Don't be afraid to ask why. When you're on interviews and they say, well, here are our goals or one of five-year goals say, well, why do you want to achieve those? Great question to ask on an interview when they say, do you have any questions for me? Strong sense of community. Believe it or not, no matter how introverted you are, right, the people that you're around are going to affect you, how you how energized you are at work. If you have a great work environment where people are positive, solution focused, etc., it really matters and it's connected to purpose. And then finally, knowing your impact. 
It's not just why you need to achieve a goal for the company's sake. Like, what is your impact? Like, if you get something done, how is everybody else and the company as a whole better off? Another great question to ask. Um, so I would definitely be asking employers those three things. Um, and just realize that leaders in an organization, they might be thinking in terms of the company's reputation, the company's differentiation, the marketplace, et cetera. So you need to bring them back to your impact. And it's okay to do that. Um, you can connect the two, but it's okay to do that because that's what's going to keep you motivated. Okay, let's look at one more thing here. So a lot of people, when they're talking about purpose, they can see it as like this fuzzy thing that's not really defined and a lot of factors are, are involved. So what's the point? A lot of factors are, are involved and that is the whole point. Okay, so how much purpose you feel on a day-to-day -day basis comes down to um, a variety of things. And you might hear words like balance, whether it's work-life balance or uh, you know, not being too narrow-minded, et cetera. And this is because studies have shown that flourishing in life, and that's the word this next study uses is flourishing, requires uh, time spent and resources spent on a variety of different activities. And people can pull from uh, different centers in their life to fill a sense of purpose and happiness and life satisfaction, et cetera. The key is you can't get it all from one place. Um, there's a lot of studies that have shown this. This is from the Proceedings of, of the National Academy of Sciences. It's called Interconnectivity of Elements of, a of Flourishing in Life. So flourishing is that feeling that maybe you've had where just things are going right. You feel uh, connected in the right way to other people, whether it's friends, families, colleagues, et cetera. You feel like you're having an impact, like your work matters. It's significant. Uh, you feel fulfilled. Like there's real meaning behind what you're doing. You're making other people's lives better. You actually feel happier, motivated, et cetera. We've all had those periods of our lives. Um, so I think it's very, very important to understand uh, that there are many different things that lead to that and you can't get them all from one place. So very quickly, uh, I'm just gonna show you here that pulling from these different centers is okay. As PhDs, sometimes we get very work focused and we think I'm gonna fulfill all my needs through work. My entire sense of purpose, physical, mental health, happiness, satisfaction, character and virtue, my relationships, it's all gonna come down and get that from the lab or from the classroom. But this isn't necessarily true is it, Mary? No, not at all. You, I mean, you can you can ride on that for a little while, I guess, but <laughs> that's putting all your eggs in one basket, and that's not that's not balanced. That's not long term. Exactly. So I know we have our, our special guest on here now. Um, please do me a favor and thank Mary in the chat box, if you would, for coming on. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. That concludes the show me the data section. We're going to bring on Peter here. I'm going to do a quick intro uh, to Peter. Really, really excited to have. Uh, him on. I, I'm going to pull up his bio here. And let me just share my screen and then we're going to bring Peter on live. He just stepped off stage. Really grateful to have him. This is Peter Docker. He is a trained leadership consultant and executive coach, passionate about enabling people to be extraordinary. Uh, Peter teaches leaders and organizations how to harness the power of why to do extraordinary things. He illustrates his insights by drawing on examples from his previous flying, military, and industry career to explain principles that can be applied in any business. Uh, he has stood shoulder to shoulder with Simon Sinek since 2011. He is an igniter and implementation specialist. What a great job title on the Start With Why team. He helps organizations harness the power of why to create extraordinary cultures and sustainable uh, high performance uh, 
cultures as well. Peter has taken his years of practical experience and co-authored with Simon Sinek and David Mead, Find Your Why, a practical guide for discovering purpose for you and your team. Uh, it's a step-by-step -step guide on how to, how to discover your why, uh, again, not just for individuals, but for, for companies and groups as well. So very excited to have Peter on. Here is Peter's LinkedIn profile. Let's show him how active PhDs here at Cheeky Scientist are on LinkedIn. Make sure you connect with him, say hello, thank him for the great insights I know he's about to give. You can also go to simonsinek.com slash igniter slash peter-docker um, to read his bio and watch a video on him and just find out a lot of great information about the amazing talks that he does all around the world. And with that, I'm gonna bring Peter on here. He should be able to start his camera. If you would do me a favor and give him a big welcome in the chat box, I would really appreciate it. Hi, Peter, how are you? I'm very, very well, and uh, thank you for waiting. Uh, as you mentioned, I just stepped off, off stage, so uh, I'm glad yeah. we could make this work. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. I know how busy you are. How did the talk go? Oh, it, it went really well. Uh, it, it's always such a privilege to share these ideas with people and organizations uh, around the world. Uh, I think I've been to about 90 countries so far. And what's powerful about these ideas is that they apply to every human being on the planet, regardless of background, culture, profession. And it's a real thrill to see people's eyes light up when you share them. Yeah, and I know that you uh, wrote a book recently, and I always like to start with the why, because writing a book is such a huge task, right? And so you have yeah. to have a really strong reason to do it, to keep, to keep moving forward. So I guess, what was your why in that sense? Why did you want to write the book? So um, my why, which we use that word as a noun, with a capital W. It's shorthand for what's your cause, what's your belief? Why'd you get out of bed each day? My why is to enable people to find their extraordinary so they can do extraordinary things. What I mean by that is I, I believe that everybody, um, when they're in flow, when they're loving what they do, that can be pretty extraordinary. And so I get my fulfillment through helping people to discover that themselves. And so it was quite a natural thing really to um, write a book with Simon and David about how to find your why, this, this higher purpose. Um, because we all have one, it's just that some of us haven't discovered it yet. And this was a follow-on to Simon Sinek's first book, Start With Why, where we had the recurring question, okay, we get the idea, how do we figure out this thing called a why? And so we wrote it because people were asking for that. And uh, it, it's a joy to know that I think it's in 26 languages, so it's reaching wow. all corners of the world. That's fantastic. And you mentioned that you, def you know, define why as a noun and a belief. Yeah. You know, we have a lot of PhDs here who, you know, they might be looking at the dictionary right now for what why is. And I, I want to uh, break it down more practically. So if you have somebody sure. thinking okay, why purpose, it's very fluffy, whatever, how do you make it concrete for people so they know exactly what it is and, and how to start finding it? Okay. So uh, there are only two things in this world. There's content and there is context. Content is the stuff that we do, the things that we say, the work we're engaged in. But content has got no meaning whatsoever without context. Mm. Um, context gives meaning to what it is that we do. Uh, it's like perhaps uh, a jigsaw puzzle that we had as a kid. You know, all those puzzle pieces on the table, that's your content. But it's only when you see the picture on the box mm. that you get the context and you can make sense of it all. 
And this is what discovering your why is like. Um, all the puzzle pieces on the table, that's life, that's your work, home life, whatever. But when you can paint the picture on the box and put into words, if you will, your why, your reason for being, it just makes all those puzzle pieces come together and make sense. Mm. And also, not to push the analogy too far, but also it sometimes helps you to realize why one piece of that jigsaw perhaps has never felt quite right. Mm. Um, and you no longer need to focus on that. So the why is the context within which you do everything. The why is the meaning that's brought yeah. to the work that you do or to your life generally. I love that context, content. And for, you know, for the PhDs watching here, there's a reason that every uh, scientific article or academic article starts with the background. So you understand the context, the significance, because without Absolutely. that, the, the results is just content that doesn't uh, Indeed, matter. indeed. And I think what's really important perhaps um, for everybody on this call, where many of you, I understand, are thinking of moving from one sphere of work to another, uh, the beauty is that it's akin to changing the jigsaw puzzle piece, but the picture on the box stays the same. So everything in your life where you've really felt fulfilled, be it at work or home, when you discover your why, it's like a golden thread that runs through all of those things. And what that means is that you can then go in pursuit of something else that brings that why to life that perhaps is no longer in academia, for example. We've done why discoveries with people who are um, perhaps sports stars who have come to the end of their career um, or celebrities or indeed Navy SEALs. You know, when you think of a Navy SEAL, they're the best of the best of the best. Um, and when they come to their retirement points, the question that arises, what the heck am I going to do now? But when they discover their why, they realize that being a Navy SEAL was just one of the what's that brought their why to life. Mm -hmm. And now they've got a lens through which to view the world and identify other what's, other things that they can do that still brings that underlying um, why to life. So it's a really powerful tool. I love that. So let, let me put that in the context of uh, the PhDs here. Most of them have, they feel like they've lost their why um, because they thought they were going to be a professor or things were going to go one way in academia. And now they're realizing the jobs are outside of academia. They have yeah. to totally switch industries, which you said you've done before. You've worked with a lot of people who've done it. You're saying it's not that they've lost their why, but their what is changing. So how can they discover what that why is, yeah. whether it's new or, or has always been there? So um, Mark Twain said the two most important days in your life, the day you were born, the day you figured out why. And wow. uh, we all have one why and one why only. Uh, although we may have many, many different what's in our life. You know, uh, I often speak to women who have happened to be mothers and they say, oh, well, my why is clear, it's my kids. No, that's a what, a very, very important what, but you're a person before you had children and you'll be a person in your own right after your children have left home. Mm. And it's the same for dads as well. You know, it's, um, it's just a what that we do. And similarly for those of us who've been very, very focused on one particular specialized area um, for many years in some cases, it's difficult for us to to figure out what else we could do um, because all of our energy has been in that particular sphere.
But when we hear people say, well, I've lost my why, actually, they've probably lost their way a little bit, and they just need reminding of their why. So how we discover our why, it's a retrospective, it's a reflection process. And as the, the book you mentioned, it's a step-by-step -step guide because we wanted to share this. And as the guide tells you, what you do is you identify um, key moments in your life, uh, going back um, perhaps to some of your early memories. Memories that you'll never forget because they perhaps changed the course of your life or were very meaningful for you, but they need to be specific memories. And the reason they need to be specific is when we reconnect to specific memories, it reignites the emotion that we felt at that time. And those emotions are there because that experience either resonated with or rubbed up against the values that we instinctively hold as a human being, whatever those values are. So revisiting those specific occasions reconnects with the emotions and so reconnects to our values. And when we look at those stories, say eight or 10 of them, uh, themes start to emerge. Those themes pointing towards what's really important for us in, in our worldview. And the first amongst of those equals becomes our why, and the rest become what we call our hows, our guiding principles. So this is the approach, and people who are feeling a little bit lost, um, either at, uh, later on in life or early stages of life, rather than pecking away like a, a chicken trying to find things that just kind of resonate, Discovering your why actually helps you then to become intentional around identifying those things which really resonate with your values and your beliefs. And then your why starts to uh, breathe life again. And you can see how, perhaps in the work that you're currently doing, the reason why it really resonated with you when you started, it perhaps will identify the reason you don't find it so fulfilling right now and give you an opportunity to shift that or it makes you much more able to find other things in the world that are going to make you feel fulfilled. Hmm. So that's how the why discovery works. It's a discovery process. I love that. It's really reframing a lot for me too, this idea that you have always had this guiding why and uh, hmm. reconnecting to, I guess, what really has lit you up in the past or made you excited. You know, for those of you, we were talking earlier about, you know, what was it that connected you to getting your PhD in the first place? What were the moments when yeah. you knew you were going to go in that path? What was the yeah. why there? I, I love that. And um, actually, can I just pick up on that? Because please. for many people, when we're doing a why discovery, um, quite often it's when they've, one of the stories they remember is the decision they took to go and study a certain subject at college or university. Um, you know, perhaps their first uh, undergrad degree. And that is quite a pivotal moment in most people's lives because there are always going to be people around you who will say, oh, I wouldn't go into that field. You know, there's no future in that. What you want to do is something else. But you are driven to go and study your chosen subject. There's something deep inside that resonates with you about that field of study. And you make that decision regardless of what those around us, be their friends or family, um, may say, because we're committed to it. And that is driven by a feeling, and that is directly connected to actually who you are as a human being and your why, your reason for being. It's just that for many people, that continues to reside just as a feeling. And it's only when we can put it into words in the form of a why statement, a why sentence, that we can then take it into action and be intentional around using it. 
I love it. Uh, um, so the book's called Find Your Why. We're going to put it in the post-show notes. I do have one more question going back to the how. Sure. It almost seems like the book, so the start with why was the, I guess the what in a sense, and the find your why is the how to actually do it. <laughs> so yeah. how do you, how do you, what's the framework that you use to connect all the dots between the why, the what, and the how? And how, how is the how important? <laughs> too many hows and too many yeah, whys yeah. there. Um, and we're, we're using the, the words in a different sense. So um, we, we all act and communicate and think on three levels. There's what we do, how we do it, and why we do it. So what we do is typically a, a product or service, or if you're in business, or uh, a job or a hobby or whatever uh, as an individual. How we do it is the guiding principles that we have, um, how we, we bring that to life. And that's where most people tail off you know if you think of um at a seminar you meet people uh, for the first time what do you do you ask them their name and then you ask them well what do you do and tell you and then you go on to well uh, okay if you're interested you ask them how they go about that but that's where the conversation generally tails off mm. um when we bring into play our why our higher purpose our cause the picture on the box using my jigsaw analogy then it uh, opens up the possibility of inspiring others who believe what we believe and then we tend to have a very good conversation so putting this into a very practical context i fly quite a bit and when i get on board an aircraft i end up chatting with some of the uh, the cabin crew and quite often they'll say to me um so what do you do because it's a human question isn't it um but i'm a why guy so i will start with my why i say well everything i do is about enabling other people to find what makes them extraordinary and when I say that, one of two things will happen. Either they will say, that's really interesting. Tell me more about how you bring that to life and what exactly that looks like. Or they'll completely blank over and just ask me if I want chicken or fish. And uh, <laughs> that's it. And I've just probably saved 40 minutes of my life. You know, So even at a, a human individual level, starting with the why, then moving on to how we bring that to life. You know, So for me... It's enabling people to find what makes them extraordinary. How I do that is that I think differently. I push the boundaries. I build relationship. Uh, what I do, I happen to be a speaker, a coach, a writer. Um, and all of those what's that I do just happen to act as proof of my why. So those how, that's how all the three combine together. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And uh, I really thank, thank you so much for coming here right after being on stage and talking. Uh, uh, You're most welcome. The PhDs. Please do me a favor in the chat box and thank Peter as well. Thank you, everybody. Peter. Appreciate it. Uh, we're going to show his book one more time here. Find your why. I am definitely going to get this book right now because I love the idea of this one guiding why through your life and finding it. Um, I've I've already been thinking of three or four moments where, you know, I knew that you know I, when I knew that I wanted to get my PhD when I knew that I wanted to do X, Y, Z, or have a certain impact, um, it is really tied to your, to not just your logical mind, but emotional. Um, yeah, very interesting. So, uh, uh, may I just very quickly just say, yes. um, this is a very simple process, hmm. but do not confuse simple with simplistic. Leonardo da Vinci said, simplicity is the greatest sophistication. We've made the process simple. Hmm. Um, and some people can look at it and think, oh, well, let's move on because we like complexity. We like to understand. I'd encourage people to trust the process, to go with it 
and you'll discover something remarkable about yourself. Excellent. Thank you, Peter. Congrats on all your success. Please thank Peter in the chat box. And we will all start turning into white people ourselves. So Love it. Excellent. <laughs> Take right. care, everybody, and thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye now. All right, so we're going to move right along here. I'm going to show the book one more time. And uh, I was actually going to uh, see if I could purchase it right here on, on the uh, show. I definitely want to get this book. And uh, yeah, that's, that's fascinating to me. So it's find, find Your Why here. And this is the book here, Find Your Why, A Practical Guide to Discovering Purpose for You and Your Team. Fascinating. Can't wait to read it. Are you a PhD student or postdoc who wants to get an industry job? Are you tired of being paid one third or less of what you are worth in academia, but you don't know where to start? Maybe you've been uploading resumes over and over again, but you haven't heard anything back from an employer. Go to phdsgethired.com and get our free materials on how to get hired in industry. All you have to do is go to phdsgethired.com put in your name and email address, and we will send you our resume guide, our networking scripts, and our other free trainings to help you start your job search now. Again, just go to phdsgethired.com. We're going to move forward now to talking to two medical science liaisons. They're, all, they're both in uh, management and director roles now. I'm going to bring on Elizabeth Thatcher and Yuri Klatchkin. And I will do their intros a little bit later. Uh, I think we have Yuri on somewhere. Lisa, you can help me with that. We'll start with Elizabeth here. Hi, Elizabeth. How are you? Hi, can you hear me? I can. Good to see you Great. on. Good to see you too. Yeah, so I, I know how uh, busy traveling you are. For those of you who don't know, the medical science liaison career path does require quite a bit of travel. I usually see Elizabeth in a new hotel or I'm in a hotel now. <laughs> hotel, hotel lobby or hallway. Um, so thanks for being here. We're, we're talking to Elizabeth for a couple of reasons. The MSL career path is gaining in popularity. More PhDs are being hired into it. There's still a lot of misconceptions about what the career path is exactly. Given all your experience now and, and, and the fact that you're in a director role at Pfizer, if you could go back to yourself, let's say, before you really knew what an MSL was, how would you describe it? Um, well, I think that actually, it took me about a year to transition into this role once I decided I was interested in it. And I think I wasted about six months not completely understanding the role because even though I had joined the CSA, I you know, got my resume perfected, but then I sort of stopped there for about six months. And it wasn't until I was like, okay, well, this isn't working. <laughs> Maybe I should go back and follow the modules that I started you know, reaching out for networking and doing lots of informational interviews. And I found out and discovered that I was really answering that fundamental question wrong in every phone screen, which is why I wasn't getting past the phone screen stage. And that's what, do, what is the typical, and I think most people, and when you search on the internet in general, it focuses on educating physicians. And although that is a portion of what I do, it's probably about 5% of what I do. And it is not the reason that they hire me for the job. They hired me for the job to bring back valuable insights and competitive intelligence that I've gathered from the field in order for them to base million dollar and billion dollar medical decisions and medical strategy decisions on for the company. And that is you know, the take home message. That's the selling point of why they pay me to do the job that I do. And there's also 20 other things that MSLs do. You know, they organize advisory boards, they're involved in, um, 
clinical trial developments, site selection for clinical trials. They can uh, help facilitate um, interactions between commercial and medical and the understanding the nuances of compliance in those interactions is incredibly important to know. And it is also what prevents companies from hiring a new MSL that doesn't have any experiences. They worry that you're not gonna understand those nuances. And that's why I think the MSLA program is so wonderful is because it really boils all of that down. And you have, you know, 50 plus MSLs in the group that are telling you about their day-to-day experiences and troubleshooting things that happen. And we're all there, you know, even the current MSLs, we're all working up the ladders together. It's amazing. It's exciting to see people get promoted and, and become new MSLs. We've had six in the last new MSL transitions in the last three weeks, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, lots of information there. So I hope you all wrote that down. But I, I love that you learn to think about the MSL role from the company's perspective. Because you're right, like on when you read stuff online, it's like, well, you educate clinicians, talk to key opinion leaders, but really a big part of the role is getting information back to the company, intel that's going to help them sell more product or develop new products, et cetera. So I just wanted to recap that because that's the first time that I think you've said it on, on one of these uh, shows and, and it's, it's great insight. So um, thank you, Elizabeth. I know you got to go soon. If you have to take off, that's fine. Really appreciate you being here and talking a little bit about uh, what you've learned as an MSL, what's really required in that role and the MSLA program. So again, Elizabeth is one of the program leaders for the Medical Science Liaison Alliance. Today is the last day to enroll. Um, if you're interested in an MSL role, you have a PhD, you, it, it's, a, it's an incredible program, the best program as far as getting you trained as a PhD because it's only for PhDs. Elizabeth, one last question though. You bring this up a lot and I think a lot of people are always concerned as PhDs. What if they don't have clinical experience? What if they don't have a life science background? Can you talk a little bit about that real quick? Sure, I would say most people don't. <laughs> yeah. And we have lots of examples in our, in our group. Hello, did I lose you? Oh, there you are. Sorry, I got a call. Uh, that we have a lot of examples in our group of people who had zero clinical experience. I personally didn't have any clinical experience. I got my original degree in engineering. I moved in. I moved into uh, biological sciences in my PhD. But it's all about personal branding and marketing yourself and how you market yourself. And we can help you new figure out how to market yourself in the MSLA, but you also have to remember to look, take a step back and look at the big picture. With a PhD you know that you can learn whatever field that you need to learn in order to be an expert in that field. You just have to decide which fields you're interested in and commit to them and start to market and brand yourself as an expert in that field. And you know, once you become an MSL, hopping from therapeutic area to therapeutic area is incredibly common. And you know, I could have zero experience and immunology, but I already have MSL experience. They know I can do the MSL role. They're like, well, she only needs to learn the science and she's a PhD. She'll figure it out in a couple months. So there's, you know, and that's so common in the field that people don't think about it that way. But as PhDs, we kind of focus, well, I'm only an expert on this one tiny little thing, but you don't get grants for that one tiny little thing, right? You had to take a step back and look at the bigger picture when you're writing your grants. You have to think about that when you're approaching the job field as well. Well said. Elizabeth, thank you for your time. I know you're busy. Have a great rest of your day. Please think Elizabeth. Thank you. Great insights today. I really, I really like um, the fact that she brought up the competitive intelligence, the whole other aspect of it, where you're bringing information back to the company. You're not just sharing information for the KOLs. Um, Great insights. Yuri, how are you? 
Hey, how's it going? You guys hear me? I can. Yeah, it looks like we can. Please say hi to Yuri as well. So Yuri, we talked a little bit about a, what an MSL does. I think it'd be great to break down how you got into your role uh, or what you've seen now that you're on the other side of it in terms of how PhDs are getting hired into it. What does it usually look like? Is it usually a couple of phone screens, a video interview, a site visit? What questions are asked to really weed people out? Any insights there? Sure, absolutely. So um, uh, as far as breaking in and, uh, you know, we, we, preach that on the Cheeky Scientist, as well as on the MSLA. It's a lot about networking, but uh, the MSLA, it's a lot of, it's also learning the language of the MSL. But as far as the um, interview process, so, um, you know, I've done a, a few of these at, by this point. So initially it is, uh, it is a phone screen, usually for about a half hour with, uh, usually it's, it's with somebody who you're directly reporting to. So you have your MSL director. Um, so um, about half hour, 40 minutes uh, or so, the questions are, uh, they're behavioral in nature, they're questions like, where do you live, do you know any thought leaders in your territory, kind of what's your, what's your background, why this company, why do you want to be an MSL, kind of very, very basic, very high level. Uh, On-site interviews, um, they, they've differed quite a bit. I've had a few formats where you essentially you sit in the same room and uh, you have um, like the director of medical affairs comes, talks to you for 45 minutes, yes. get a little break. Then, then your, uh, your immediate director comes in, talks to you for about 45 minutes. Then perhaps somebody who is, you know, maybe a clinical director comes in, yes. uh, 45 minutes. Then maybe your colleague will come in, talk to you uh, for 45 minutes. Then maybe somebody from HR. And, uh, and then at the end, you will uh, give a 20-minute yes. presentation. And uh, to the group that you've uh, you've met with throughout the day, so that's one format. Another format I've I've, I've been on is um, kind of one hour with six to ten people sitting in the same room, like in a conference room setting, and they go around the table one by one, asking you questions uh, regarding your CV, uh, you regarding your experience. Uh, a lot of questions are behavioral in nature. I guess to summarize it all, for the most part, the questions are, you know, why do you want to be an MSL? Why this company? Um, what do you, what makes you a good a good MSL? Um, tell the behavioral questions are more around. Tell me about projects that didn't work out. How you leverage that situation? Mm. Uh, maybe team members that uh, were not easy to work with, and how you manage that. Um, yes. Something about something you're proud of that you've completed. Uh, some some off the field questions were like, "What was the last book you read? You know, like, what are you doing you know, working?" So, uh, so you, you, have, you, you, know, you want somebody who has kind of a wide range of, ex, of, of interests as well as um, scientific expertise. But uh, the most important thing I think is, is coming prepared with 10 to 15 questions of your own uh, mm -hmm. to ask them. And that's how you can showcase your, your knowledge and the background research that you've done on the company. So they will never ask you, they will, very rarely will they ask you any scientific questions about their pipeline, or questions about their data. Yeah. Um, or questions about kind of, you know, how you work with sales or marketing. I mean, sometimes they will, but rarely. But this is something where you can showcase your mm -hmm. knowledge of the field of what the MSL does and also the knowledge of their pipeline and the company by bringing in these questions. You can ask them about the, their data, how they work with sales and marketing, what projects the MSL do, um, mm -hmm. what's exciting in their pipeline. Um, a lot of stuff they can't really, they can't disclose, but they, they can still talk to you about it because they're, you got to understand, they're recruiting you just as much, they're interviewing, you're interviewing them just as much as they're interviewing you. So it's a, it's a two-way street. So 
So that's kind of the gist of, uh, of that process. Yeah, and, and last question, we just had somebody on who has worked with Simon Sinek and wrote a oh, sure. how to find your why with him. Uh, so talking a lot about professional purpose, fulfillment, et cetera. So what is the most fulfilling part of this job for you? Not, not so much the achievement and, and, and that side of it, I guess, but more of the, you know, why does it feel great to do this job? Why do you really enjoy it? What, what fulfills you? Sure. I think, I think the most fulfilling part about this job is uh, when you see, when you're having a conversation with a physician and you see them connect the dots between what they see in the clinic and the data that we have. And because, because you know right away that that's a, that expertise is going to go into patient care. Mm. And, and that right away, you, you're helping you know, dozens, if not hundreds of people, just with little nuggets of knowledge that you bring to them or, or from maybe a philosophical discussion that you have mm. with them about potential use of, um, of a product or potential uh, fit in their uh, treatment paradigm or just in general. So in short, it's just you are changing patients' lives on a, on a daily basis by communicating effectively what you know in the therapeutic area and, and the product you support. Amazing. Thank you so much, Yuri. Really appreciate you coming on last minute. Good to see you. Please thank Yuri in the chat box. Uh, So Yuri uh, is a uh, regional medical science liaison at Celgene, about to be Bristol-Myers Squibb. I'm going to show a little uh, bio for him as well as Elizabeth. Uh, They had to jump on. They both have busy days today, but great to see them. They came on because today is the last day uh, to join the Medical Science Liaison Alliance. This is our fastest growing and most active advanced career program, MSLA Alliance, very last day that it's opened here. If you go to msla.cheekyscientist.com, you can get in. The only program out there that's only for PhDs and has only one-time membership fee, none of this recurring monthly, yearly, um, bogus uh, payment styles, just you're in. And you're in for life because we know we're going to get you a job and then we'll help you get your second, third, fourth job uh, as well. And the program leaders are amazing. They're not only MSLs, they, they hire MSLs. They know what you need to do to get hired. Now we have Elizabeth here. Uh, nope. Yuri here first. He's currently at Celgene. He's a senior regional medical uh, liaison. Uh, been promoted many times from a regional medical liaison to a clinical education liaison. These are all similar terms that mean he's a medical science liaison now in a management management role. And then we have Elizabeth who's at Pfizer and uh, she's a field medical director at Pfizer. Uh, she's also worked as a, as a medical director. Again, it's another term for medical science liaison at, at Paramel. Uh, so thank you to uh, Yuri and Elizabeth for coming on. Okay, what do we have next? Does this, does this bring us to the end of our, our public portion? Are we, no, we have on, I think we have another guest on, we do. Mariano, very excited. So what we like to do on the radio show is we bring on our external leadership guest, that was Peter, and we bring on an internal guest uh, to talk about their career path. We do a different career path uh, every single week. Last week, we published a great article on the application scientist position, a very popular position. I think an application scientist position is a medical science liaison position, but for biotech. So if you're getting into this kind of role in pharma, it's called medical science liaison, but if it's in biotech, it's called an application scientist. This is why a lot of people in MSLA have gone into application scientist roles, but it's really a medical science liaison role 
for biotech. So it's just a very, there's two very interesting career tracks. Overall, we'll talk to, to Mariano here uh, about the role in terms of specifics, but same thing for both of them. You're going to be talking to thought leaders, key opinion leaders in the field. You're going to be helping people apply a company's products, whether those are drugs or medical devices, antibodies, you're helping them apply to their research, to their clinic. That's a big part of what you do. And that's how the application scientist role got its name. Again, you don't have to be a scientist. You could be an engineer, et cetera, for this role as well. Very exciting career track. And we're going to bring on Mariano to talk with him more about it. All right, Mariano, I can see a camera with a slash through it. Not usually a good sign. Um, I know Zoom has had some updates recently. We had somebody on our team who just had to get theirs updated. So Lisa, Mary, maybe you can help out Mariano. Mariano, what you can do is you can get on from your phone and we can try that instead. I don't know if you can talk by audio. Doesn't seem like your audio is working either. He's switching to his computer. Oh, thank you, Mary. All right, so we'll have Mariano on here in just, just a second. I think he'll be leaving and coming back on. So again, medical science liaison, application scientist roles, very, very popular, uh, very, very popular career tracks for PhDs. I'm curious how many of you here that are associates are considering either the MSLA role or the application scientist role? And Lisa, I, I have made him co-host. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why, but tell me how many of you in the chat box while we're waiting here have considered those two roles. So Kermit says application scientist, Maria says an AS role, Nanad says an AS role as well. Let me do this. Let me make him co-host again. We'll see if that works. All right, Mariano is co-host again, Mary and Lisa. We'll see if we can get him on. Yusuf says MSL. Gulshan says application scientist. Application scientist was actually my very first role and I loved it. I think I would have loved either application scientist or MSL role. Again, it's just whether you wanna work in pharma or biotech. I got to travel a lot. I got to work remotely, which was amazing after being for me stuck in the lab. I mean, every day for you know 12 to 18 hours a day uh, towards the end, you're trying to finish your thesis, everything, but again, being out there in the world and being able to travel you racked up so many points. You're able to travel first class very quickly. You're able to be, you know, Hilton Diamond member very quickly, which is just a great experience to have when you've been an academic your whole life. You get to be very autonomous. You go in and you talk to other PhDs, other clinicians, and you help them apply the company's products to their research. So you get to stay close to science. Uh, so it gave me a lot of fulfillment because I was staying close to science, like uh, Yuri said, and. I could see by showing the data or helping them apply a company's products in a different way that their research was able to blast off and have a breakthrough, right? For an MSL, the, the, the clinician will see that piece of data and know how to use the drug better and help more patients. Uh, so if you like to travel, if you, can be, if you like uh, being autonomous in your work, if you like being a hub of communication, right? It was also very fulfilling for me because I felt, I don't know, like special. Like I was able to speak nerd and normal person. Like I could communicate what the clients in the field, whether they're PhDs, doctors, right? What they were saying about the company's product back to the company. And that's what Elizabeth said. Uh, you could communicate it back to the company, give them intel on what was working, what's not working, et cetera. And then you could communicate what was coming from the company, right? From like the R&D department to the people in the field using 
the product. All right, so let's see if we can get Mariano on. Mariano, you are co-host. I can't see your camera here. Let me see if I... You should be able to turn your camera on. There's a little camera button, Mariano, in the bottom left. What you can do is you can sign off. Oh, we got him. Oh, you yeah. did it. Finally. It's yeah. all right. Luckily, I can vamp and talk about things that maybe one or two people in the audience care about <laughs> in the meantime. So good to see you. How are you today? I'm great, thanks. Sorry if there's a lot of bug noise, but hey, I, have to run. I ran from one meeting to another one, to a plane, and then go on. <laughs> see, that's what I was just saying as an application scientist. And your, your home office is often a Starbucks or anywhere else that has Wi-Fi, right? Exactly. Well, anywhere. <laughs> let's get, yeah, let's get your perspective. So what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis as an application scientist? So I do tons of things that I didn't know that I was going to do when I joined the company. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, it's like I'm a scientific advisor for all the people that have the instruments. So I need to help them assay development, set up the assays if they have doubts. Uh, then I have to meet prospect clients and then show them our technology. Um, I have to give webinars. I have to give seminars. I need to give workshops, so it's a little bit of everything. So one day I'm teaching in California, the other day, for example, now I need to go to Boston for a demo of an instrument. So it's like very varied. It's like I'm not doing a single thing every day. And I need to give presentations. I need to meet people at the time, especially from yeah. different pharma companies and universities. So it's amazing. I'm really happy with this job. Yeah, I can tell you love it. I mean, so. It's great if you like a lot of variety, if you're self-organized, a self-starter, because you have a lot of autonomy, right? Yes. You book your own flights and stuff. Yeah. Um, and I would say on the broader scale, what was it, like if you had to say in one sentence what you do, like I always say, well, I help companies apply. I mean, I help uh, clients apply a company's product. Mm -hmm. Is that what you feel like you do? Like if you had one overarching thing that you do as an application scientist, what, what would that thing be? I help researchers succeed with their research. I love it. <laughs> I mean, that's it, basically what I have to do. It's like in every aspect, it's like either by the scientific part, either by the human part. So it's a mix of everything because you want them to succeed with your instrument and help them do the best research as possible. Yeah. And so can you help us understand the communication flow a little bit more? So you're taking you're taking information from the company and communicating it to the client. Yes. You're also taking information and feedback from the client. Exactly. Customers back to the company. And what departments do you work with? How does that flow of communication work? I work with many departments. So it's like a, a very interactive job. It's a work team, basically. It's one team working for the same purpose, uh, improving science and improving health of people, finally. Um, so we are communicated with production, we're communicated with the research and development, we are connected with the sales teams, with the order management, so we need to know absolutely everything about all the company, and then gather the information, let's say there's an instrument that somebody, so the sales team does their order management that there's an instrument that has been bought, so they will sell, send that to production, production would tell, okay, the instrument is going to be ready this day. We need to organize a visit to the customer to make the 
installation of the of the system. Uh, I usually give a seminar, then it's a hands-on training. Then after that begins uh, the day-to-day -day help with the customer because they always have uh, questions about the asset development or the technique itself. So you need to help them do that. Uh, so also you need to know a lot about all the science because today we're working with a pharma company that they're doing um, monoclonal antibodies. The other day you're working with another company that's doing optimers. Then the following day you're working with somebody that is working with small molecules. Uh, one is doing hydropod screening, the other one is characterizing a, a protein. So it's like it involves a lot of science, tons of information that you need to handle and also coordination. As, and as you said, uh, you need to be very well organized and communicative with all your group. Mm. Um, yeah. So it's and a great job. <laughs> Involves yeah. a lot of things. And as you say, it's like all the time, like you're visiting people, you're knowing people, knowing uh, new technologies, comparing your technology with the other ones. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Fantastic. No, no, that's exactly what I was looking for. So awesome. I think it's important for everybody to know that when they're getting into the application scientist role, very similar again to the medical science liaison role, you're a hub of communication. Yeah. Great. Because you get to see so many different departments inside of a business, everything. You're, yes. you're managing the communication. You're coordinating a lot of things. You're getting feedback from the customer, which makes you very valuable. Yes, you're building exactly. The relationships with the customer, which makes you very valuable. But you're also getting feedback from the company in terms of from R&D or changes that are happening that are going to help mm -hmm, the client. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you get all the valuable information. Yes. You're the owner and, of it and you get to give it out. It's, it's and that's, great. Yeah, that's good that you mentioned also. So we also, when the customer gives us some feedback, we need to provide that feedback to the company and then the company will act based yes. on that. So then actually I, I used to be a user for the instruments before being an application specialist. How, did, how is it that I, I get the job? Knowing all the instruments and being passionate about the techniques. Um, but I, I've seen all the feedback that the company gets and makes the instruments better uh, according to the people's um, feedback, so the the users. So, and that's also an application specialist. Um, uh, how is it? Um, responsibility, because if you don't pass that to a marketing or to the CEO or to somebody saying, "Hey, I think this person tells things that we need to improve this, or they would like to do that, or they're working on this and that," uh, research wouldn't know what else to improve, right? Yeah. Exactly. So that's very and, uh, important. And the, and the last question I have is, I'm curious about how you got into it. You, you, you mentioned the fact that you used the product, yes. which I want for all of you listening, we talk a lot about product knowledge being a key transferable skill. Now, if a company Absolutely. is hiring somebody, would they rather hire somebody who's used their product or not? Right. And even on mm -hmm. top of that, would they rather hire somebody who's used their product alone or who's used their product and co uh, competitors products that gives them market knowledge. So exactly. A great way to get leads for jobs is to look around. What are you using in the lab, in the classroom? What software, et cetera? Mm -hmm. um, uh, one last thing Mary just mentioned in the chat box that Mariano works at Nanotemper. Yes. Hiring for application scientist positions and a few other positions. Yes. They're one of our exclusive partners. So for those of you who are associates, if you go into our job notifications group, our private community, we have job postings there for you. Um, you will be put to the top of the list. Uh, if you apply, just mention Cheeky Scientist. Mm -hmm. um, so, so back to the last question, Mariano. How did you get the job? Did you notice you were using the product and then you contacted the company or how did it play out? 
Uh, so it was, uh, yeah, I've been using the, the, the instrument for more than six years. And then I, I, when I was a postdoc and then I changed jobs as an application specialist in, in a facility that I also was responsible for the instrument. So I had a lot of contact with the people from the company and a lot of uh, insight from uh, all the application specialists. So I became an application specialist little by little, basically, because I've been using a lot and I've been having a lot of troubleshooting with the company, with the instruments, because I have a very tricky um, project. So that's how I began knowing anything. And also, since my project was kind of complicated, they, they wanted me to participate in meetings. And also, like, meeting people, um, going to meetings and say, hey, or also by liking things in LinkedIn, uh, because since I was passionate about the techniques, I, everything that they were providing is like, oh, I was liking things. I, I, I put uh, some comments and everything. And then all of a sudden, when I applied for the job, everybody knew me. And it's like either the, the um, marketing group, and it's like, how do they know me? It's like, yeah, because you're always liking our posts and everything. It's like, oh, really? I didn't know that I was like making such an impact. <laughs> no, I'm really glad you say that because a lot of you who are listening, you, you hear us say, be active on LinkedIn, like posts, etc. Guess what? Companies notice when you do that, even if you exactly. just like and consistently, mm -hmm. they have people mm -hmm. who are usually paid to see the feedback from people using their products, etc. Just people in general in the field. Yes. Um, so it's amazing that that is one of the things that triggered. Yeah, people. exactly. Love yeah. It. So making like um, some uh, updates in uh, in your LinkedIn. Yes. And uh, liking the pages and talking about your experience with a company that makes them aware that you know what you're working on. Yes. And, and then when they need somebody, it's like, oh, hold on, this guy knows something about the technique because he's been working with it for six years, and then. Yes. He likes the new technologies, and so that's important. And I have always been a, a very like a dependent on the company because for me it was um, my salvage, basically, because in my PhD, in my postdoc, I had a project that was very complicated. I had every other things, but it didn't have an interaction affinity. And my boss told me, no, no KD, no paper. And thanks to the instruments from another temper, I have a paper as a cover of a magazine in a journal of like investigation. So uh, for, for me, it was a sale. It was a saver, basically, life-saving thing. That's great. And well, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, no, and I, I think that's a, a great way, way to end it. Congratulations on the paper, the new job, everything yeah. that you've achieved in your career. Mariano, thank, thank you very you. much for taking the time to be here with us. Oh, so, thank you so much. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. All please, right. thank, please thank Mariano in the chat box. Congratulate him on his career. Very exciting to hear about it. Well done. And this takes thank us to the, to the end of our radio show. Thank you, Mariano. Bye-bye. Uh, appreciate you being on. And again, please say thank you uh, to him in the chat box. Great to hear his story about how he transitioned, what application scientists do on a day-to-day -day basis. If you're interested in getting into a medical science liaison career or medical science liaison-esque career, such as an application scientist, uh, getting in medical affairs, check out the Medical Science Liaison Alliance. Go to mslacheekyscientist.com. Enrollment does close today. If you just want to learn more about transitioning into a career in industry, overall, go to phdsgethired.com. We'll send you all of our free materials, 
on the top 40 career tracks, networking scripts, resume guides, everything you need to start understanding the transition process. Again, it's at phdsgethired.com. It'll take you to a sign-up page where you put your name and email and we'll send you our free materials. Thank you all who are watching the live stream for joining. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. We'll see you on the next Cheeky Scientist radio show. This takes us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about transitioning into your first or next job in industry, just go to phdsgethired.com. Go to phdsgethired.com. We will send you all of our free training materials that will help you start your job search now or help you take it to the next level in business. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Pump up the bass. Oh, <laughs> oh,